0: morning scriptures coming from first timothy 3 8 through 13 deacons likewise must be dignified not double-tongued not addicted to much wine not greedy for dishonest gain they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless their wives likewise likewise must be dignified not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. We're spending several weeks looking through New Testament passages that address leadership. Uh, leadership principles in the Bible as as we prepare as some of you who are members of this very young church, prepare to nominate um, your first elders and deacons who will be vetted and trained throughout the next year and, and Lord willing um, will have uh, a list of of folks next next fall uh, to elect and and ordain so it 's an exciting time for us, and the, my hopes in this, my hope in this series is is to prepare our own members. Uh, to, to do a good job in, in nominating people uh, that God will be calling as, as your first leaders. And we come to, uh, in, our, in our third discussion, uh, we come to the role of the deacon. But let me tell you a story first. Laverne Stokes uh, told a story about her life in Sandtown, where she grew up and where she lived and raised her own children and became a community leader there. Sandtown, uh, after World War II, was a thriving African-American community in western Baltimore. About 45,000 inhabitants uh, lived in Sandtown in the 1950s. By the 1980s, only 15,000 inhabitants remained. Because over the decades, manufacturing left that part of the city. And jobs left along with the manufacturing. Uh, People began to move out into the suburbs as drugs and crime moved in. And entire blocks, and you can go there now. Um, I've been there several times. And my family's worshipped in Sandtown before on occasion. And you can drive through Sandtown, and you will see in 72-block community, and you will see... Entire blocks, blocks of boarded up houses. Row, 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 row home after row home. But Laverne Stokes wrote that in 1986, something curious happened. A few white folks left the suburbs and moved into Sandtown. And their names were Mark Gornick, who's now in New York. Uh, But not only Mark Gornick, but uh, Alan and Susan Tibbles, And their daughters. The Tibbles and Mr. Gornick were Christians. uh, Stokes says they were Christians who took Christ's command to love their neighbors at face value. And decided to move into the inner city. And as they began to humbly and respectfully work with already established community leaders in Sandtown. Over the years new initiatives began to develop. That brought life and hope back into the community. One of those initiatives was a PCA church called New Song Community Church. And it's still there today. Another was Habitat for Humanity. Uh, that started in that neighborhood by that faith community. Also a new school for children. By the way, Craig and Maria Garriott, are friends... Uh, And Stan and Terry Long, Stan's preached here before for you, uh, of Faith Christian Fellowship, did a similar thing and lived a similar story in Penlucy on the other side of the city. And, you know, in these communities, if you know much about them, there is still a lot to grieve over. This isn't a Cinderella story. There's still a lot of brokenness. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done. But I share them with you as illustrations of our topic for today, along with Deacon's mercy. They're illustrations of mercy ministry. And what I mean by mercy is when we help lift one another's burdens, felt burdens. As Christians help to lift the burdens of those who are distressed or marginalized in our faith community or in our broader community, I call that mercy. Now, when we talk about mercy in the church, you have to talk about deacons. They go together. These two concepts go, to the, go together together. And we looked at elders last Sunday uh, from earlier in First Timothy chapter three. Whereas the office of elder is, I believe, the most essential thing for a healthy church. Uh, the office of deacon is perhaps the most misunderstood thing. In a world where burdens and injustices increase, deacons reflect God's mercy. And I want to talk about mercy in the Bible and mercy in today's church and mercy as it's understood in the gospel. Mercy in the Bible, mercy in the church and mercy in the gospel. So mercy in the Bible is found abundantly as you read through the pages of the Old Testament throughout the law, the books of the law, throughout the prophets. Mercy is a big theme. Israel's God was persistently conscious of the poor. Mercy, as you read the Old Testament, mercy just flows out of Israel's God. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, the Lord through Moses told the Israelites, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Israel had to have a heart for the poor because God had had a heart for them. God would say to the Israelites, remember when you were slaves in Egypt? Never forget that. And now as aliens and strangers come into your land, you be merciful to them. And when your brothers are struggling, your brothers and sisters, your own countrymen and women, you help them. You keep your hands open when, when, if you're a farmer and you're harvesting your field. And what happens when you harvest a field? Well, leftovers are strung about. And God said, don't pick up the leftovers. You leave them for the poor. You let them have your leftovers. So Israel had a heart for the poor because God had a heart for Israel. And David understood this when he wrote Psalm 23. And we, talked, we, we read this together earlier. We remember, the, we remember that, that Psalm 23 is all about God being David's shepherd. But have you considered that the metaphor switches halfway through the Psalm? We read it earlier. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The First part of Psalm 23 describes God as a shepherd. But have you noticed this? The second part of Psalm 23 describes God as a host. As a host who serves David. Who brings him into his house. And treats him like an honored guest. So we see in Psalm 23 and in the Old Testament. That God has a shepherd's heart. But we also see that God has a servant's heart. And Jesus completes the thought in Mark chapter 10 when he said to his disciples who were bickering about who was better than each other, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the early church, led by the apostles, took this mandate of loving your neighbor by serving the poor seriously. And one vivid example of it is found in Acts chapter 6. And we looked at it last year when we, when we worked through the book of Acts. Uh, there was In Acts chapter 6, read it in your own time this week, there was a church-wide approach to a mercy need in Jerusalem. Uh, the Greek-speaking... Greek-cultured Jewish widows were being overlooked and underfed in the distributions of food to widows, because widows couldn't protect themselves in that society. But they were going overlooked. One particular subcultural group was being overlooked. And so the church appointed seven godly men full of the Holy Spirit to address the issue. And if you read about it, you see that it was a complex issue that these seven elected men had to address because they had to address an economic problem. They had to address an administrative problem, a growth problem, and they had to do it in a culturally and racially sensitive way. Very complicated, but they handled it well. Now, how, how did the early church go from what we see in Acts chapter six to the established role of deacons in individual churches. How how did it get to that point? Honestly, we don't really know. The New Testament is not very clear. What we do know is that in Philippians chapter 1, Paul, when he writes his letter to the church in Philippi, he mentions the elders and the deacons who are there in that church. And of course, here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is laying down some specifications for not only electing elders but electing deacons as well. And that's what we have. Now, as you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and consider what Paul is saying to Timothy about deacons, uh, there's a lot of overlap, isn't there? If you were here last week and you read about elder qualifications, there's a lot of overlap between elder qualifications and deacon qualifications. As a matter of fact, there are nine qualifications listed here for deacons and six of them. Are basically synonymous with what Paul's already said about elders. So, again, it has less to do with a legalistic checklist and it has more to do with a character sketch, a picture of the type of person that should be a leader in God's church. That's, that's the idea. So, I'm not going to exegete through each requirement like I did last week with the elders. Because go and listen, if you weren't here, listen to the recording, you'll get the picture. All right of the kind of man that God is looking for. Uh, nonetheless, you may have noticed a couple of differences. I just want to mention in passing one in verse 11. This was noticeable. Have you, have you noticed that Paul mentions their wives, deacons' wives? Now, there's been a lot of discussion over the decades of what he meant by that. Was Paul talking about women in general in the church? Was he talking about a third office other than elder and deacon, uh, an office of deaconess? Or was he talking about uh, what it looks like at face value? He's talking about the wives of deacons. Um, When you look at it exegetically and when you look at it in context and take it again, like I said, at face value, it seems to be that Paul is talking about the wives of deacons. Regardless of how it's interpreted, what everybody agrees on, Um, in scholarship, is that it is very clear and obvious that, in Paul's mind, women were to play a vital role in the ministry of the church. Now, if you're wondering about the role of women in leadership in Presbyterian churches, in the PCA, in our denomination, because you should be wondering about it by now, because this is the third message. If you're wondering about it, stay tuned and come back next Sunday. Because we're going to talk about women in ministry and women in Jesus next Sunday. So I hope you'll be here. If you miss it, it'll be, uh, it'll be uploaded to the website. And you can listen to the recording. Next week, stay tuned. Come back. Now, the word deacon, this is the approach I want to take today. I'm not going to take you through each qualification. But I want to talk to you about the word deacon and what it means. The word deacon, diakonos. In the original language. It simply meant for our purposes today. It simply meant a servant. It literally meant somebody who waits on you. Think of your waitress. Think of your waiter. When you go out to dinner. Think of the people in your life that go unnoticed and overlooked and unthanked so that you can enjoy yourself. That's what the word meant. A servant servant. As elders reflect God's shepherding heart, deacons reflect God's servant heart. That is That is that that is what you need to know. Elders reflect the shepherd's heart that our God has, and deacons reflect God's servant's heart. Now, I want to ask you a question at this point. And particularly for those of you who have been around churches for a long time. I mean... Uh, No disrespect to you if you're not a Christian or if you're not coming from a church background, uh, you're just as important, and you may have uh, thoughts about this yourself. But especially if you've been around churches for a long time, what, according to your observation, do deacons do? I am not looking for a right answer. I am asking you, according to your observations, what have you seen deacons do and what have you seen deacons about most of the time? Any Anybody willing to make an observation? Yes, sir. Property management. Property management. So what do you mean by that? They buy and sell houses? They maintain the church building. Okay, they maintain the church building. So if it's in the suburbs, they mow the lawn, rake the leaves. If it's in the city or, you know, Main Street in Westminster, it's, I don't know, take out the trash, wax the floor. Other thoughts? Council and support members of the church. Okay, so the deacons in that church kind of divided up the congregation and and were available to serve and and help and counsel people in their particular group. Okay, thank you. Uh, Yeah, Kate. Visited the sick. Okay, what else? Change the oil, rotate tire, tires for some folks. Actually, Willow Creek, which was like one of the first mega churches in American history in the 1980s and 90s, they had a huge ministry that, that just helped people uh, address their automotive needs. Yeah, entire ministry of the church. Yeah. Liaison between the elders and the church body. Okay. Did, did I see a hand over here? Yeah. Okay, manage the mercy fund. We actually have a mercy fund. Um, Okay. Uh, Yeah. Okay, provide accountability to the senior pastor, to the pastoral staff. Okay, a couple more. Organize meals for those who are ill or for those who are shut in. Maybe, yeah. Manage, basically manage events. Okay, manage fellowship events. Okay. Uh, Somebody whose hand hasn't gone up yet. (laughs) She really wants to say something. Go ahead, Judy. In some churches, it's the deacons that serve serve communion. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Those are good observations, and many of them were encouraged It was encouraging for me to hear that because it sounds like like, um, I hear a lot of good ideas of what diaconal ministry is. Uh, Our brother in the front uh, he was the first one to raise his hand and he mentioned taking care of the building. Yeah. Now yeah that's I would say that's that's under uh, a, a deacon's purview. What I've found personally is far too often the image we have of deacons are those guys who stack chairs and sweep the floor. And that's That's part of it, but it's not the heart of it. It's not the heart of it. And that's what I'm hoping to impress upon you today. It was Martin Luther who said, the diaconate is the ministry of distributing the church's aid to the poor. And when you boil it down, that's what it, in the very least, must be. And mercy in today's church, must be exemplified by the deacons. We're all called to mercy. But just, just as the elders exemplify the Christian life to us, the deacons exemplify how to be merciful with God's resources. The deacons guard and lead this key aspect of church life. Look at verse 9. Paul says that the deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And what he means by that, this is interesting, because this is the only qualification that is an inward. Everything else is observable. But this is a qualification that you can't observe. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. He means they have to remain committed in their hearts. To the gospel. That's the mystery of the faith. They must remain committed. To Jesus. And his gospel. In their hearts. If they're going to serve. This is a very important distinction to make. Here's why. By being committed. To the gospel. As foremost. Deacons show that mercy is not an end. In and of itself. Social justice. Community service. Which is very popular. Even in our secular society today. Has no grounding. In. And no purpose if it's not rooted in the love for God. If it's not rooted in the gospel, which is that God loves us, and so now we live a new life. So a love for God and understanding the gospel, Paul says, is the foundation for all of our community service, for all of our social justice, for all of our mercy to one another and to the community. Randy Neighbors, who is a pastor and has done a lot of work in the area of mercy, offers a definition which, which is, in, our, is it's in his book called Merciful, and I think we have two copies of it on the book table. Neighbors defines mercy this way. Mercy is compassion towards those who are in need, resulting in action to alleviate that need through acts of charity leading towards self-sustainment. Compassion towards those who are in need resulting in action to alleviate that need through acts of charity leading towards self-sustainment. And neighbors went on to write about what mercy is not. Mercy should not be enabling bad behavior. Mercy should not be creating a system of dependency. Mercy should not be paternalism, patronizing the people you help. Mercy should not be sweet words without action. Mercy should not be for doing later when help is needed now. Mercy is not merely good intentions. And finally, neighbors said, mercy is not circumventing the truth and circumventing justice for people who have made bad decisions. But the result, when you look at Acts chapter 6 and how they handled that situation... This is what Luke records the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. You see the impact that mercy had. They were sharing God's truth. They were communicating and preaching the gospel and they were meeting one another's needs and the community took notice of that and more were saved as they saw that witness. So. What Timothy Keller says uh, is another book that we have on our book table. In his book, Ministries of Mercy, is this. Mercy, mercy has an impact. It melts hearts. It removes objections. It forces respect out of even those hostile to the gospel. Our good deeds glorify God in the eyes of the world. Our concrete deeds of love for one another are an apologetic for the validity of Of the Christian faith. And he quotes Jesus. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. And so as the deacons of a church. Gather. The church's resources. To address the felt needs. In the church. By lifting the burdens off of those. Who cannot help themselves. And cannot fight for themselves. And cannot speak for themselves the church begins to shine like a light. That's how it's supposed to work. So what I'm encouraging you to do is to pray for for people like this who have this kind of a heart. Pray for and consider men who exhibit and exemplify the mercy of God in practical ways. The other thing Tim Keller does in his book, on mercy ministry and diaconal ministry, is he distinguishes between word-oriented ministry and deed-oriented ministry. And this is very insightful, which is why I want to share it with you. In order order to respond to the gospel, Christians are about word-oriented ministry and deed-oriented ministry. Now, as a pastor, most of what I do, not all of it, by no means all of it, But most of what I do, by my own gifting and calling, is a word-oriented ministry. But here's the thing. You don't want a bunch of writers and speakers and counselors on your diaconate. You don't want a bunch of people like me serving on your diaconate. A few of them, fine. But you don't want a diaconate full of speakers and counselors and writers and... and, um, I hope this makes sense. let Let me be at the risk of overgeneralizing it. Let me say it this way. You want doers and problem solvers with administrative gifts and servants' hearts. That's your diaconate. Doers and problem solvers with administrative gifts and servants' hearts. You want people who can rise above feeling personally inconvenienced by serving others sacrificially. Because let's be honest, isn't that what's making some of you uncomfortable right now? The idea of being inconvenienced to serve other people. Isn't it true that we often give our best thoughts and most of our energy to our own needs? To the needs of our immediate family and our closest friends. Now, we should at least be doing that. However, Jesus said, you know what? Anybody can do that. Jesus said, don't the the godless pagans do that? Isn't it true that even the wicked love back the people who love them? What's so special about that, Jesus said? But it is a supernatural thing to love and serve people you don't like. To love and serve people who don't like you. There would be no gospel to hold on to without mercy. Steve shared with our kids earlier today about the parable of the good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10. Jesus shares a story about this good Samaritan in response to a question that a lawyer had asked him. Lawyer meaning expert in the Torah. The law of the Old Testament. I'll just summarize it for you. Uh, The man says, teacher. Uh, What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Well, you know the Bible. What do you think? He said, Well, I'm supposed to love my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. Jesus said, Good, you do that and you'll live. Uh, And then Luke says, But the guy wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus another question. He said, Who is my neighbor? How far can I, how far do I really have to go? What are, what are the limitations I can set around the definition of love your neighbor as yourself? And Jesus responds, as he often did, not with a straightforward answer, but with a story. And he said, there's this guy, there's this Jewish guy who's walking along on the road to Jericho and he gets mugged. He gets mugged and beaten and stripped and robbed and left for dead. And then one guy comes along. He was a priest. And and the priest looked at him and ignored him and kept going. Um, and he was probably like late for church or something. And then a Levite comes by. Another clergyman. And a Levite notices the guy. And the Levite neglects him and keeps going. He was probably on his way to a barbecue. Um, kosher barbecue. So it would have been like you know beef or something. Um, so... So Jesus says, but then a Samaritan comes along. Now, the Samaritans, they were sworn enemies. They hated each other. But the Jews looked down on the Samaritans in that part of the world. And Jesus says, a Samaritan comes along. And the Samaritan stops. And a Samaritan helps the guy. And the Samaritan takes care of the guy and puts him in a hotel and rehabilitates the guy at his own expense. And this is how Luke concludes the conversation. Jesus asks the man, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? You can almost hear the reluctance in this man's voice. He, uh, he says, uh, well, the one who showed him mercy. Couldn't even say the Samaritan. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, well, you go and do likewise. Tim Keller then responds to the parable by saying. Our paradigm is the Samaritan. Who risked his safety, destroyed his schedule, became dirty and bloody through personal involvement with a needy person of another race and social class. And Keller went on to say, are we as Christians obeying the command personally? Are we as a church obeying the command corporately? Jesus, my friends, Jesus lived the paradigm. He tells this parable, but he lived the parable. Jesus radically inconvenienced himself to become a human being, to die on a cross. Jesus radically inconvenienced himself to become your mediator, to become your redeemer, to become your friend. So you inconvenience yourself and serve another person in, in need. The people who aren't easy to serve. That's what mercy ministry is. What if Christians gave a good, not just the leftovers, but a good portion of our thinking and energy to solving problems Right here in our own church. The needs in our own church. And, and then branching out from that. The needs in our community. What if Christians gave. a good, Some of their best energy. And some of their best thinking. To practically serve one another. My friend Bill Evans. Said this. The deacon. Is one who models. The diaconal heart of God. Seen most clearly in the life of Jesus. Ensuring that the community of faith can enjoy its freedom. Did you hear that? So that the community of faith can enjoy its freedom unencumbered by poverty and need. In order to fulfill their calling as the people of God. To be a blessing to others. So that God might be known and his community expanded. That's the ministry of your deacons. That's our ministry. That you look for and you pray for men who can exemplify it and organize it and lead you in it. In a world where there are burdens that increase, where there will be and always will be this side of eternity injustice, deacons reflect God's mercy. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for a beautiful, beautiful picture of your heart. Thank you that Jesus became our good Samaritan, that he became unlovable and unnoticed and served us even to the point of his death. And so in his name, full of joy and thanksgiving for how he served us, we commit ourselves to you as servants, as servants of of each other, as servants of your church, as servants of your flock. And I pray that we would be a light as we serve one another and as we give our minds and our passion and our intellect to solving the problems and felt needs that we see right here in our own faith family. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom and experience to then be a light in this community. And I ask it in Jesus' name, thankful, thankful for what he's done for us. Amen.